We're looking at uh, Acts chapter 16 today, and the, the, the story, it's really the story of the Holy Spirit, and the story of the Holy Spirit's creation of the gathering that is what we call the New Testament church. And I want to point something out because it's going to come up repeatedly, and I've alluded to this before, and sometimes this is fine with you, and sometimes this can, uh, I get a little negative feedback for this, but I want to point out that the Apostle Paul, who is uh, probably the hero of the early church along as a human, not the, the hero of the early church is the Holy Spirit, he was very temperamental. And I don't mean temperamental like passionate, though I also mean passionate. He was temperamental. He wrote things like, pagans don't even act this way to the Corinthian church when he was trying to get their attention. In a couple of chapters from here, he's going to tear his garments and yell at a bunch of people and say he's never going to talk to them again. And then in the next chapter, he's going to be talking to them again. In, uh, earlier in Acts, we see he has a sharp disagreement with Barnabas, who was nicknamed the encourager. So like, he still could disagree with these kinds of people. In the book of Galatians, he says, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In Philippians, he says, uh, he uses a pretty strong word in the Greek, trying to get people's attention. He was a temperamental person, and yet, at the beginning of Acts chapter 16, it says this. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because we have a long chapter. I'm going to read bits and pieces of it throughout the sermon. It goes like this. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He spoke well by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. He was spoken well of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's referencing Acts chapter 15, and also in some measure Acts chapter 11, where the uh, men and women who were followers of the way were considering the role of God's law in the Old Testament to followers of Jesus. Okay? Quick summary, you can reread Acts chapter 15, but that's what verse 4 is referring to. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So I bring up Paul's temperamentalness for a whole bunch of reasons. One, the Bible is full of almost entirely imperfect people that God pursues in love and gives a role in his story. does not present hardly anyone without showing us their blind spots, weaknesses, sins, with the exception of a handful of characters and especially Jesus himself. The other reason I believe it is, if you understand Paul, if you know anything about Paul, if you've read what he's written, you know that it makes, the thing that makes him most mad is when someone says, in order to be a follower of Jesus, you must follow this rule or you're not a follower. That makes him lose his mind. See the book of Galatians, see Acts chapter 15, see almost everything else he wrote. Nevertheless, he had Timothy circumcised. And that reminds us of something that I talked about last week that I want to say again, and it'll come up repeatedly because we don't naturally do it. The Apostle Paul, who was more passionate than you or me and more temperamental, still was interested in guarding the conscience of his fellow followers of Jesus. This is an essential skill for us. It doesn't mean we don't talk about all the things. 
both the things that are incredibly important, essentials, the, the secondary things that we often don't even remember to think about, and then the things that we would automatically classify as, as third level or what we called in seminary tertiary things, what the EPC, our denomination, would call non-essentials. We can talk about all those things. We can talk about politics. We can talk about the role of the minor prophets. We can talk about spiritual gifts and other things that are going to come up specifically in Acts 16. And the way that we talk about it is really important. I don't know if you have an opinion on baptism. I don't know if you have an opinion on women in ministry. I don't know if you have an opinion on the role of social justice for the church. I don't know if you have an opinion on politics. Though I bet that you do. When we talk about these things, because we must talk about them, Acts 16 will show us in a whole bunch of ways that there are these issues that churches have to figure out, and they're not going to be spelled out for us. When we need to talk about these things, We talk about them in such a way that we guard one another's conscience. Don't put something on Facebook without remembering that you're putting it on Facebook to help and encourage and to guard one another's conscience. doesn't mean don't put it on there. Maybe write a sentence before you put it on there. When you bring something up at a dinner party, when you're angry and you're talking with someone about what angers you, they can know you're angry. And you can still guard their conscience and their difference of opinion about something that humans will disagree about until Jesus returns and makes all things new. If the Apostle Paul was interested in guarding one another's conscience in all of his passionate temperamentalness, you and I can also guard one another's conscience. Very important. The way our denomination talks about this is there are essentials and they're non-essentials. Our essentials are, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to read the whole document. It's one page. I'm not going to read the whole document, but they're God, our, opinion on, or our perspective on Jesus from the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, sin, what the church is, Jesus' return to earth, and our job to tell people about him. Those seven things are things we consider essential. Everything else we discuss and we figure out as local churches. And we do so in such a way that we guard one another's conscience, regardless of what non-essential thing. And non-essential doesn't mean you don't feel passionate about it. That's not what I'm talking about. But non-essential to the faith means that being a follower of Jesus, a follower of the way, that's where we begin. And other things are not essential to divide over, especially. Isaac, what did they call this in your training? References... I didn't tell him I was going to ask him this. But crew, crew trains their people on this too. In seminary, we called it primary issues, secondary issues, and tertiary issues. The EPC calls it essentials and non-essentials. Got it? Do you remember it? Core issues. Yeah, opinions. And that's, per- that's a perfect segue because the middle ones are the ones that we often forget about. What they would say in seminary are the primary issues, the ones we die for. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, sin, Jesus' return, the role of the church. The secondary issues are the ones that we tend to forget about. Those are the ones that are going to come up in Acts 16. And the tertiary issues are the ones that we kill over. Because that's how humans work. We tend to get most fired up about things that we would, in a, in a moment of clarity, acknowledge as not nearly as important as whether Jesus is going to return or whether his work, especially on the cross and the resurrection, does in fact pay for our sin. So it's actually fantastic. 
but you forgot that. And the, the theme of our denomination is a quote by Augustine. It's in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity, truth in love. This comes up throughout the scripture as a mandate, as an encouragement, as a way of doing life that we are looking to live in the tension of talking about truth and doing so with a tone of love. The Holy Spirit is leading Paul and the gatherings, and the gatherings are the local churches. Remember, a church is not a building. A church is a gathering of people who sing God's word and who pray God's word and read God's word together. If they have a building, that's fine, but that, the building is not the church. The church is a gathering of God's people. The Bible, again, is the story of God's pursuit of his people. Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit beginning these early churches in spite of persecution, in spite of internal bickering, the movement continues to grow. And the, the way that we're going to see the internal bickering in Acts chapter 16 is in Paul's temper, which God affirms the passion of and, and continues to grow the early church. And Paul is a temperamental fellow. And I bring that up for a number of reasons. I'll come back to it in a minute. But the Holy Spirit is leading the gathering. So Paul and his group are, are trying to go one place, and the Holy Spirit tells them no. And if you're like me, you're like, How? How did the Holy Spirit tell them no? And it doesn't say explicitly. And the Holy Spirit continues to direct them. This time, Paul has a dream. This is not the only way that this happens, that the Holy Spirit leads the church. Sometimes it's through conversation. Sometimes it's through prayer. Sometimes it's through prophecy, where, and prophecy is speaking truth to other followers of Jesus. That truth can be about their past or their present or their future. It's all of it. We need a big definition of this. Um, Acts chapter 16 is not super specific about all of the ways that the Holy Spirit was leading these gatherings to happen. And the reason that I'm focusing on this for a second is not only because I'm representing Acts chapter 16 to you, but also because how are you directed by the Spirit? There are some ways that we are all supposed to be directed by the Spirit. God's Word, prayer, conversation with other followers of Jesus. Here's the thing I want to add to your thinking about this and to to my own. Maybe not add it, but remind you. Your conversation with God, if it's only one way, there's an intimacy that you're missing out on. And there are a lot of ways to hear from God. Other followers of Jesus can help you in that discernment process. The word of the Lord helps with that. Pausing in prayer and listening either with a question or generally. These are the ways that we as individuals and as a gathering are led by the Holy Spirit. And I hope that you have not only a prayer life, but a prayer life that involves pausing and listening. I believe they did here. The point is not whether you pause or practice that form of prayer. The point is, your conversation with God is two ways, whether that's through Scripture specifically or through prayer, and I hope that you experience that kind of intimacy. And what's happening with the gatherings is they're becoming more local. So the focus of Acts chapter 16 is on Timothy. We read about that a little bit. There are two conversion stories in Acts chapter 16, and if you've read the book of Acts, you know that sometimes the conversion stories are large groups of people. This is not. This is two families. And the movement is getting a little closer to Rome. Those are the things historically in this, in this story of 
the early church that are happening. And the, the other reason that I bring up Paul's temper is I want to free you in two ways, and only one of them is going to sound like freedom. One, when we notice the imperfections of any of the men or women that God called to himself that have a challenging story throughout the scriptures, you don't have to like them. It's all right. If your picture, like Andrew preached a few weeks ago, and he said, I'm not sure I would have wanted to be a travel on the, in the travel group with Paul. Wow, I didn't say that very well. Not sure I would have wanted to be a traveling companion of Paul. It is okay when you get disoriented, when you become disoriented by a character in Scripture. I know a lot, a lot of people have come to me privately and talked about how much they do not like King David because of some very challenging and horrible things that he did. That's okay. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you must still learn from them. And it's a gentle double reminder that God always uses imperfect people with the exception of Jesus for his glory, for the growth of the gospel, to grow one another up. And so you do not have to, like Paul, you can notice that his temper was at least interesting, if not very challenging to most of those around him. But you must learn from him if you're a follower of Jesus, because he wrote a number of books, and the Lord utilized his gifts mightily. The Holy Spirit leads Paul in these gatherings very unconventionally. So the first conversion is a woman named Lydia. Lydia lives in the city of Philippi. She's become very wealthy, selling purple goods, which probably means she sold to uh, local governors and um, different important people, basically. But she's, a, she's an immigrant to Philippi. There's then a very interesting story that I'm going to read to you about the second, I think, probably member of the Philippian church. And then the Philippian jailer is converted. If you have your Bible, I'm looking again at Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, Joseph references in his prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, like you do, when an evil spirit is following you around, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out, of, and it came out that very hour. And then we're expecting people to marvel at this and probably come to faith. No, no, the, the economics of the moment are disrupted. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. That's at best a half-truth. So if you're reading this going, oh yeah, this is persecution. It is in the sense that, that Paul and his companions are about to get beaten. It's not in the sense that it was lawful persecution, which Paul will come back to in a very timely moment later in the chapter. Picking up in verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were singing and praying hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And that's the kind of thing that I think we miss when we read the scriptures. The beauty of that moment. If I go to a, t- a town and I get an opportunity to preach, let's just, I'm just going to put this in my own context. And because of the way that I preach and that whatever that religion is, they beat me and tear my clothes and then put me in prison. I'm not at all sure I'm going to be singing at midnight. And I don't know if we need to picture them with smiles on their face. I think the reason they're singing is not because they felt happy. They were in pain, physical. I think the reason they were singing was to remind their hearts of what they believe about God and they had a sense that God was about to do something else in this city. I think that's why they were singing, though it is regardless of the reason, and the scripture doesn't tell us. It's wonderful to picture that, though challenging, I think, to us. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, which might sound like an overreaction to you. This is very in line with the culture of how well the Romans did their business. If you fail in military or in uh, law enforcement, it's a really big deal. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the unconventional beginning of the Philippian church. First, Lydia, an immigrant, wildly successful woman. You know, it was very challenging in the first century for a woman to do business. They weren't allowed to own property or to vote, and so the, uh, her abilities must have been that Amazing that she was able to have that kind of success. The second convert, I think, is this girl that was being abused by the local people because she had an evil spirit in her. Paul cast that out. And the third convert is a Roman occupier. So these three people are not going to want to sit by each other in church. And when Paul writes the letter to the Philippians about 10 years later and he's talking about the conflicts, he doesn't name these people specifically, we don't think. We don't know the slave girl's name. And we do have a few names in the book of Philippians. We think, I think, that it was just fantastic when these early churches started. They would eat together and pray together and some of them had actually seen the risen Christ so it was okay. No, this is an unconventional beginning where men and women who would not normally sit with one another learn to do life together in light of the gospel of Jesus. One thing that I wasn't pointing out along the way that I wonder if you notice is that Acts chapter 16 is appropriated on all sides of non-essential arguments. And I, I, on a good day, I love this about the scriptures. Women are referenced repeatedly in Acts chapter 16 and throughout the book of Acts. And yet the book of Acts does not tell us exactly how to do church leadership, with, especially with respect to men and women. Spiritual gifts are referenced in Acts chapter 16, and yet they're not explained as thoroughly as some of us would like. 
there are two baptisms in the book of Acts. And people that believe that we should baptize infants notice that Lydia and her household and the Philippian jailer and his household were baptized. People that do not believe we should baptize infants either ignore this text or they say that everyone was older, though we don't know. And the reason I'm bringing it up, and be ironic if I tried to land any of those arguments, you realize, because my point is, we have to learn to talk about these things in a way that guards one another's conscience. We have to decide how we're going to do it at our local gathering, but we have to not get distracted from the main part of the story, which is the Philippian jailer saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It doesn't mean we don't spend time and energy on those questions. That doesn't mean the answer to those questions isn't important. But when we let those questions distract us from the essentials, we can be dangerously close to not being a church, being some kind of other social gathering. That's why I write, you see in your notes, the Holy Spirit leads Paul and the gatherings unconventionally for its glory and for our salvation. What's happening in Acts chapter 16 is not so wild and awe-inspiring as Acts chapter 2, and it's something that historically lasts and is much more healthy, which is local. It's locally growing, town by town. Elders are appointed. Men and women are sharing their faith and bringing their household along with them to learn about the with God life about following Jesus. So I've called the title of the series Asylum because the beginning of the Christian church is very unconventional. It is not how we would draw it up if we were starting a religion. It moves in fits and starts, both because of outside persecution and because of internal arguments. From the outside, if you're willing to believe the things Christian believes, it, it, it is a safe and a good place to be a human. And it looks like a very diverse group of people, perhaps like a group of crazy people. Lydia, the business owner, immigrant, the slave girl whose issues probably didn't leave after Paul exercised the evil spirit from her. And so the church learned to abide with her limitations and challenges. Maybe she kept yelling because she was angry because she had been hurt. These things don't go away. The Philippian jailer was a, a very wealthy man who was paid well by the Romans, which would have been challenging for those that had experienced oppression at the hands of the Romans. And they learned to do church together. And it wasn't because they believed in humanity. It's because they believed in Jesus as Lord. I remember hearing a preacher say in the 90s, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that sounded compelling to me then. That is how these other things came about in the early church, and it is something we remember. Now, conservatives would like to say that the main thing is the only thing, and liberals, I'm just speaking really broadly, can think that the main thing isn't the main thing, it's just one of the things. And I think the challenge for us is to keep the main thing the main thing, but that doesn't mean we don't need to grow. That doesn't mean there isn't more to the questions in, in, in this chapter and in other chapters about being a human, about figuring out the different non-essential questions that it brings up about race, 
about gender, about gifts, about how the church is supposed to work and what it's supposed to do with its resources. But the reason that we can do that and guard one another's conscience and function as a family on mission, that's what a church is, is by keeping the main thing, the main thing, which is believing on the Lord Jesus and trusting him for salvation and to guide us. A couple of years ago, a friend reached out to me. I've told this story before, but I want to tell it to you again. And when she has asked me this question, I've never sensed that she was satisfied with my answer. I've answered her in person and by email the same way. She says, when you're really struggling with your faith, what happens? What do you do? What works? And I tell her, it's actually the evidence. The evidence of the truth of the early followers of Jesus is the most comforting thing to me when I doubt. Like, what does that have to do with Acts 16? Everything. Why do we know that Paul's so temperamental? Because the reason the early church worked was not because he was such a good missionary. It's because it's true. Why do we know about this slave girl? Why do we know about the Philippian jailer? By the way, when the uh, magistrates come to the jail and say, you should go ahead and free them, Paul says, no, you have to free us because you're the ones that unlawfully put us here and we're Roman citizens. You know why I did that? It's to protect the job of the Philippian jailer. I just think that's a cool thing and I forgot to mention it earlier. But my friend who struggles with a lot of circumstance and... um, And with her faith, when she asks me, I've answered her, I believe, three different times over about a decade of friendship. I love the book of Acts for this reason. It's these imperfect people, many of whom we still have historical records of, separate from the scripture. And then we have the scripture, which is a historical record that many of them actually met the risen Lord. And then they figured out how to do church together. And its messiness proves to us that it's accurate. Historically verifiable, and, evident, and existentially satisfying to me. And I hope to you also. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, would you help us to keep the main thing in front of us, that the Lord Jesus, the believing in him, frees us from the weight of sin and death and into eternal life joy and peace, even in this life. Would you help that belief to then help us do spiritual family, reaching out to our neighbors as a group and as individuals, loving one another, and most importantly, worshiping you, singing back to you the words that you've given us, praying to you, opening your word and being encouraged. Fathers, we wrestle with our own questions and doubts, primary and secondary and third-level issues, would you come alongside us and help us as we converse to guard one another's consciences? Would you help us to sense, would you give us a sense, Father, of the Holy Spirit comforting us as we explore and consider and study? Would you help this local gathering, Lord, make much of your name and become more and more joyful, even in the midst of our challenges and sorrows, 
Make us more and more joyful in our praise and honor of you. Amen.